Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, you are listening to episode 90 of the Howie Games Part A, the old nervous 90s, eh? Thanks for lending the show your ears for an episode I am really, really pumped about, featuring seven-time Grand Prix winner Daniel Ricciardo. He has made every single opportunity that's come his way today. Ricciardo wins the Chinese Grand Prix. Dan is undoubtedly an incredible athlete and universally recognised as one of the top Formula One drivers going around. But what most people don't see watching him in action is the way Dan treats people. For me, working at the Grand Prix in Melbourne year after year for Channel 10, tasked with interviewing Dan as he arrived at the circuit time and time again, I have been fortunate to see him amongst the fans, and Daniel Ricciardo is absolutely brilliant. I've always looked at it and seen him, and with the pressure and demands of his home race pushing and pulling him in all sorts of directions, Dan somehow finds the time and energy for every autograph and selfie with that big smile we all love, but also with a kind word. Post-qualifying or the race, even if things haven't gone his way, he always treats the media with respect and warmth, where sometimes you look at him and think this must be the last place he wants to be at the moment and the last thing he wants to be doing. For me, this is the true mark of the man, why he is a winner no matter where he finishes on the track each Grand Prix. It is a rare and wonderful quality. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Couple of shout outs before we get underway to previous guests, to the guru, Adam Gilchrist, episode number one, the pole sitter in the show. Gilly organised this pod with Dan through their friendship and to Blake Friend and the Renault DP World F1 team for green lighting it. Thank you. Also, g'day to the big quick Brett Lee, episode 80, who obviously has a brother Shane, an international cricketer himself. Shane has launched a ripping podcast called Lunch with Lee. It's sort of a fusion of sport and business, music, chats with some fascinating people. And for me, I love it because it's a really positive podcast. So there's a recommendation for you. Check it out, Lunch with Lee. Can't they see they hold the key? Could make things better if they try. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? Alrighty, here is Danny Rick on music, which I do not know much about, as you're about to find out. Early adventures in Italy, doubts, proving yourself behind the scenes of a life in F1, the perfect overtake, and plenty more. Enjoy Daniel Ricciardo. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, Australia's current Formula One driver for Renault. This is a man who I normally chase around the Grand Prix at Albert Park for a minute and a half and pester him with questions, so I look forward to getting to spend a bit more time with him. Dan Ricardo. Dan, welcome to the show. How are you going? G'day, Howie. I'm, I'm well, thanks. I'm well. I'm on Australian soil, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy right now. 
I've often wondered when you arrive at the Grand Prix Albert Park and I was working at 10 and it was my job designated to speak to the drivers and obviously you're always at the top of the rundown. What's it like there when you're trying to sign a million autographs and there's a plonker with a microphone just asking you irrelevant questions as you arrive at the Grand Prix track day after day after day? <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a tough balance as well, you know, because... There's, you know, as far as that walk goes, as you just described, the entrance to the circuit, you know, there's, there's a bunch of fans that, you know, have, have things you want, they want you to sign and photos or whatever. Um, so you're trying to kind of please as many fans as you can who have, I guess, travelled to be there. But uh, then obviously there's, there's a, a TV audience, you know, which, mm. which you're obviously pleasing and I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to do that. So I don't know. It's, I think one thing I've, I've realised is, you'll never please everyone, you know, so I, I can stay longer and, and sign as much as I can and, and talk, you know, for as long as I can. But inevitably with a, with a crowd and audience that big, someone's always going to miss out. So, yeah, I, I, I tried to, you know, give myself, say, what, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. So I'd leave the track, uh, leave, leave my hotel a bit earlier and uh, accommodate for it. But uh, it is tricky. It is tricky. And then you kind of got to switch on and, and get focused for the, the race and that. It's Tough one, for sure. Well, you always did a magnificent job of it, I must say. Hey, doing a bit of research, mate, into the world of Formula One and you and looking on YouTube, etc. there is hardly a Formula One question that I can ask you that you haven't already been asked. And this is not a podcast about, you know, who you're driving for next year or what Sebastian Vettel really like. So the only way I could think of starting this was, what do you like talking about away from sport? And we'll have a chin wag about that first. When you're not talking about Formula One and you're relaxing with your mates, what are you talking about? That's that's a nice entry. Um, I mean, you, to kind of touch on that, you're you're totally right. It's it's, uh, and I guess any sportsman or I guess even any businessman, you know, you're always getting questions about your everyday job, and and there's only so much you can ask, and especially when we're in the. <laughs> The, the light and the media you know we've pretty much answered everything under the sun regarding the racing so uh I mean I do like to talk about other sports you know I'm interested in other sports for sure so um I've got a few mates who we just are obsessed with like the UFC for example you know mix mixed martial arts um right so I would say pretty much obsessed with that um otherwise yeah music I love music I, I don't play but I I love seeing music and kind of all that to go with it. So, yeah, stuff like that we'll talk I about. Was, I was concerned you were going to say music, mate, because I'm sort of back in the 80s with you too. So my only my only sort of coolness I could try and bring to you is your man out of Fremantle, the Tame Impala. That, that's all I've got for you? Yeah, Do you listen right. to his gear or what, what, are, you, what are you listening to? <laughs> that's all right. Um <laughs> Mate, I, I'm extremely diverse these days and maybe it comes with, with a little bit of age, but, um, I mean, for example, last night we had a little bit of Johnny Cash playing, okay. you know, this morning we were listening to more some like current hip hop, um, so I, I could name some artists, but go on, hit I, me. I, I, Let I me see how I go. <laughs> young Thug, do you know Young Thug? <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet, but I'll look him up. Who else you got for me? The um, Thug. YG. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll stop. No, I'll stop. No. Give me one more. Uh, let's go with. Oh, 
Uh, I'm trying to think of someone you might know. You might know. Unless it's Marky Mark. I'm not okay. sure. Okay. Have you, you would have heard, right, he's been on the radio, but you would have heard of a guy like Kendrick Lamar. Does that name ring a bell? Yes, I have. I have heard of Kendrick Lamar. All right. We weren't listening to him, but that was close enough. <laughs> so you weren't even listening to him. All right. But no, he's so good. You like he's music. Good. I noticed, um, I was looking on your website. Um, I had the pleasure of being in LA a few weeks ago on the way back from a, a trip and we were hiking the canyons and you were promoting some hats and stuff you were doing and I read that you spend a fair bit of time in LA. So before we get to you and your motor racing career, why LA? Because it's, a, it's such a diverse place. Is it somewhere to escape or is it somewhere you feel you fit in or is it somewhere those artists that you just mentioned to me maybe spend a bit of time hanging? <laughs> they, I, um, <laughs> it's probably, probably all of the above. I... Uh... I didn't go there like so it wasn't somewhere I went as a kid and you know always had a bit of a nostalgia with you know the the city or anything I um I went there for the first time in 2014 so I was I was well into my 20s and um I I felt like there was a lot of similarities with Australia you know the climate and the it's quite dry as well but you've got you know the beach very close to the city um and uh yeah I think there was it was an opportunity to kind of escape but still have you know, things that I was familiar with that I grew up with back home. Um, and then the, I think also the ability to kind of do what you want when you want in terms of, you know, seven nights a week, there's something happening. If you want to go see some live music, you can see it, you know, it's, you're not kind of just waiting for the weekend. So having it at your doorstep, I, I really liked, but you know, you can equally, you know, you drive 20 minutes and you're in some canyons running or cycling and, um, it just seemed to have it all and I was quite fascinated by it. So, yeah, I have tend to, um, you know, spend a bit of my off, off time in L.A. Is your man, young thug, playing when you're in L.A.? Or does he just <laughs> run over there? <laughs> I, I actually, I, I prefer to see more, like, uh, bands as far as live. Okay. I, I think, you know, with a, with a guitar or something, it's, it's a bit more impressive live. Um, the hip-hop stuff... You, you kind of might as well be in a nightclub. But, uh, yeah, I went to see... I saw a band not too long ago when I was in L.A. called Camp, um, and it's double A for some reason, but Camp with a double A. And that's kind of like a... I'd call it, yeah, like a folk folk kind of music. Uh, and that was really good. That was amazing. So you, you might that might and be more, more up, up and, your alley. Okay, well, I'll check out Camp with a double A. You got me walking And is Di Ricardo moving on the dance floor or are you the shy retiring bloke at the back? How are you operating there? Uh, I'm, I'm not shy. No, I'm, I'm certainly, I'm either... <laughs> I didn't think you would be. <laughs> I'm either singing, <laughs> singing terribly and ruining it for everyone or I'm, uh, okay. I'm, I'm doing some thought squatting, which you probably don't know what that is either. But <laughs> now, come on, educate me. What was it called? Nah, thought just, squatting. Thought squatting. I'm just being silly. It's, it's like... Uh, <laughs> It's just, uh, it's just, just think of squatting. That's all. <laughs> I'm starting to feel old. Mate. Just get I, I didn't feel old before I came into this, but you're starting to make me feel old. <laughs> how, how long were you in LA for? Uh, mate, we were down in um, Guatemala on a bit of a surf trip, so we sort of normally go to that part of the world and get two days on the way in and two or three days on the way out. But we stayed in West Hollywood for the first time, which was fantastic. But my trip there with an eight and a ten-year-old and a delightful wife is probably slightly different to yours. I'm tipping. Okay, gotcha. It can still be nice, I'm sure. But uh, actually, I just had a friend come back from Guatemala and said it was amazing. It is. If you go, 
There is a volcano called Akatenango and another one called Fuego. Um, I figure you're a reasonably adventurous type. Climb those, and it's a live volcano. I don't know where your reno contract stands with climbing volcanoes, <laughs> but it'll blow your socks off, mate. Okay, good to know. He did he did mention something about a volcano, so I guess it was one of those two. Yeah, no, outstanding. All right, let's go back and ask you some of the more predictable questions, hopefully in an unpredictable way. So you're a young bloke growing up in WA. The name Ricardo, obviously an Italian name. Can you tell me a bit about your family? Yeah, so uh, you're, you're right. It's an um, Italian surname. So my dad, uh, Joe, but on his passport, Giuseppe, which is, yeah, uh, Joe. Yeah, Joe in English. Joe in Italian, that's the word. Giuseppe is Joe in Italian. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, so he was, he was born in Italy, um, in the south, in Sicily. Um, and his parents moved over to Australia when he was about, I think, seven years old. Um, so, he, yeah, definitely some Italian blood. And then mum, mum was born in Australia, but some of her older siblings were born in Italy. So her parents moved kind of halfway over. Um, sorry, moved over halfway through uh, having kids. So was Italian spoken in the house when you were growing up as a young bloke or not? Not, not really between our, like my parents, but uh, when we would go to the grandparents' house, uh, it, was, it was normally like a broken English or a broken Italian. So, yeah, you'd kind of, you'd small talk with your grandparents in Italian. Um, but, yeah, you just learned the basics. But, I mean, now till this day, their English is still kind of broken. So I'll, I'll tend to speak to them more in Italian now. So what's your best Italian accent? Can you give me something in Italian so I can just cast my ear over your accent? Alrighty, um, I'll just say, I'll say like, hi, my name's Daniel, uh, and I'm speaking to Howie uh, on Monday. Let's say that. Okay. Ciao a tutti, mi chiamo Daniel, e sono parlando con Howie, e oggi è una magnifico giornata lunedì. A magnificent <laughs> something on the Monday? <laughs> yeah, I just said, today's a, a, a magnificent day uh, on Monday or something. I probably didn't even say it right. I was hoping it was Magnificent Podcast, but I'll take a magnificent day. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how to say podcast in Italian, so... (laughs) No, no, El Podcasto. So when does young Daniel first drive a car or a cart or a vehicle of any significance that has speed that rocks his world? Yeah, I was... I I think I was eight when I I drove a a go-kart for the first time, like a, a rental cart. You know some of the the indoor the indoor places you can go to, and it was it was long before that that I'd seen these places existed and wanted to go. But uh, you know there was always the height um, requirement. You know you had to be a, a minimum height to to be able to drive, and uh, I was always under. And then I finally was tall enough to have a go, and um, yeah, just I loved it. I loved the feeling of speed. I loved. You know, one word I use a lot with driving and it was, you know, one of the first feelings I had was freedom. You know, you're a, you're, I was an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid and you've got this, this kind of power at your fingertips and your feet and you can go and you feel kind of the wind in your hair and all that sort of stuff and it's a feeling of freedom at such a young age. So I loved that. What was your first time you stuck it in the wall? Um, I mean, I went, in, I went in plenty of gravel traps as a kid in a go-kart and true story, I, I would cry every time I would, I would go off. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I would just break down. Like, 
I felt sorry for dad who would have to like run out and come and collect me. And I just felt, I probably felt like a bit of a failure as well when I was young, like, you know, spinning out and making mistakes. And I was probably just embarrassed. So I used to cry a lot when I would make mistakes. Um, but yeah, that's a little, little fun fact for you. I don't think I've told, told anyone that one. All right, we're going for an exclusive then. Uh, and follow-up question from that, obviously, these days when you're in the Renault or the Red Bull or the HRT or the Toro Rosso, do you still tear up when you stick it in the gravel trap or have we progressed past that? <laughs> I, I've progressed past that into just probably more of like rage. Um, <laughs> I've certainly broke some, uh, some vulnerable objects before, um, objects that don't tend to fight back. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say my temper's probably a little a little shorter fused the older I've got. But uh no no less crying, less crying. You do well to hide it. So when Dan do you become of the realization this is no time for modesty, I often say to people on this show Ricky Ponting, when he first started playing cricket at age nine, he was destined to play for Australia. Others, John Aloisi wasn't the best footballer in his family. His brother Ross was better than him. Were you an elite talent from a young age or were you just a bloke having a go and then somehow, which you can explain to us, progressed, mate? Yeah, I would say uh, I, I would say I wasn't in the category of elite talent growing up. Um, I think I was in the category of like massive passion and, and desire, but um, I think there was, there was certainly a talent which was always there. Like I would pick things up very quickly and that was... I think in general with sports, like I was never elite at any sport I played, but I, I tended to be able to pick them up quickly. So I was kind of like an all-rounder, you know, pretty good, but not top of the class. Um, but then, uh, yeah, the racing, I think I was never afraid. Like I never had the fear to go fast or, you know, so that, that, was, that was where it needed to be. Um, I think just as a kid, I liked confidence, you know, and that then... Uh, transfers itself onto the racetrack you know with competing against others and believing in yourself and you know going wheel to wheel with another driver thinking and and having the belief that you're better and you can you know put yourself out there I I didn't have that as a young age at a young age so that was that was what stopped me from being why not looking back um, what what did you lack confidence in in yourself or in your performance or just as a young bloke growing up and finding his way and growing into his body and all those things we go through yeah, I, I don't know. I was I was fairly um, I was always competitive. Like I had that competitor in me, but uh, yeah, I was I was I wouldn't say it was on my size. Like I was a pretty skinny kid and small or smaller or whatever. But I wouldn't say it was because of that. I don't know. Looking back, maybe I was a bit of like a, a mama's boy. Like I had, you know, mum was pretty pretty good to me growing up, and I was you know probably got into a comfort zone where I never really had to face too much adversity and kind of stand up for myself and if I had to then I, I guess I felt a bit out of place so um, yeah I would say that that was probably where it was on the surface I think deep down I've always had some level of fight in me but uh, it was it was never it was always a few layers deeper like I couldn't it wouldn't just come you know I think that on the on the outside I was a, a pretty soft soft kid I'd say so at what stage were you taken out of your comfort zone? Was it when you first went to Europe or when did you first really put yourself out there and put your nuts on the line for want of a better expression? I would, uh, yeah, the, the most, uh, I'd say the most significant part was, yeah, going, going to Europe. Um, but uh, So how did that come about? 
Uh, a lot of a lot of long nights uh, of procrastination, um, and I think that was because I I still at that age, you know, so I moved to Europe when I was seventeen, but I still then didn't really know if if I had what it took, you know, if I was good enough, and uh, you know, there was still just a lot of uh, unknowns and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so I was I was a bit apprehensive to go there and to leave home and you know spend quite a bit of dad's money in 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 the process of it. Um, but yeah, one one thing which I guess did uh, convince me to go to Europe it was it was a, a few months before that. So um, we're talking yeah 2006. I, I did go to Europe for for a one-off race um, to try and yeah let's say uh, test the water. And uh, yeah, I was intimidated and, and whatever, but I surprised myself even that uh, on that race. And uh, I, I did very well against kind of the biggest names in the junior categories at the time. And I think that boosted my confidence a bit and, and that kind of showed myself I could be there. So yeah, but then when we had to pull the trigger and say, all right, going to Europe, um, that was a kind of another story. But in doing that, that made me realise that it was actually what I was supposed to do. So on that story, before we get to the cars, mate, if you don't mind indulging me, like where did you move to and were you living by yourself and were you having to look after yourself and cook and pay the rent or were you with a family or what was the setup as a 17-year-old? Because it is young to move to the other side of the world, 17. It was, it was, and it was, you know, particularly young for me because as I touched on, you know, I... You know, mum, mum was, we lived in a pretty good household. You know, mum would cook and do most of the cleaning. I mean, the most I was doing was making my bed, but uh, I didn't really know too much, too much more than that. Um, you know, dad, mm. dad was, dad was, I would say, a, a pretty firm dad. He, you know, gave me discipline when, when I needed it. So I, I had the discipline, but I also had the comfort, um, you know, which, which kind of mum gave us. So yeah, I, I, I moved when I was, yeah, so 17, moved to Italy, um, in a small town, which I'd, I'd never been. So I, I guess, yeah, so the, the team the team I signed with that year said, all right, you know, if, if you sign with us, we'll pay, pay your rent of the apartment. Um, we'll put it, you know, it, we'll have the apartment in the town where, you know, we're based. So you can have, you know, a little bit of company. Um, and yeah, that was pretty much it. So my parents flew with me to Italy um, I think it was February the 2nd, 2007. And we rocked up in this like little town. And uh, I would say the average age was maybe 95, 96 years old. <laughs> um, mate, po- population of, I reckon, maybe 12, 1500 people in this town. And uh, yeah, so they, they helped me kind of set up for, I think they were with me for about eight, eight nine days. And then that was it. They They went back to Australia and... I was there, there was, yeah, no internet, no, there was not really anything. I just had a gym and uh, that was really all, a gym and, and meals to eat. Um, Lonely? Yeah, it was, it was, but um, I can't say like for sure there was times where I was lonely, but I, I, I never really let it get to me. Like I didn't sulk or, or cry. I mean, I'm sure I had some nights where I probably was a bit sad and may have cried a little, but it never got to a point like I was, if I found myself crying or down, I'd literally just click my fingers and kind of tell myself to snap out of it. And uh, 
yeah, the, the racing, once the season started, the racing was enough to keep me, you know, happy. And, you know, I was so excited racing that when I was back home in this little apartment with a bunch of old people, I, uh, I was just kind of focused on the next race. So yeah, it, I grew up a lot. I grew up a lot. I mean, I called my mum one night, there was a thunderstorm outside and I called her and I said, uh, I, I want to do a load of washing. Um, but can I turn on the washing machine or will I get electrocuted? True story. <laughs> True story. Yeah. It was legit. Good story, Danny boy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I grew up, I grew up pretty quickly, but, uh, yeah. that, that, that taught me a lot. Like, and it all, it also taught me like how much I, I wanted to make it work, you know, in terms of, I didn't want to go home and just have nothing to show. Like, so there, there was a lot of drive and motivation, which I, I took from being there. Um, yeah. That's why I love doing the podcast because, you know, on a Formula One grid or, or in the paddock or you've made it and you're successful. I don't think people realize sometimes what you guys and go, girls go through that reach the top of their sport, that it's not all uh, Monaco and yachts and happy days, especially as a young bloke. That's, that's a big decision to make. And as you say, if you've got the financial concerns of the fact your dad's helping you out as well, it's going to put pressure on any on any 17-year-old. Yeah, it does. And that's, that's where I think it's, look, and, and when you kind of make it and, and naturally – you know, then you're on the big stage and that's normally what most people see. It's, oh, you know, he's now spraying champagne and living in Monaco, but there's always, there's always a process, you know, no, no one, no one gets to the top of anything in life overnight. Um, and everyone's got, I'm sure a, a story of struggle or, or, uh, something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I also don't want to say that uh, that's why I kind of touched on, like, I wasn't crying and homesick and all that like I don't want to play up to it um sure I missed friends and family but um I certainly had blinkers on for for making it work so looking back yeah it was I'm surprised I did it because there was times where I was like yeah I think I was just naive I just didn't know better so but now knowing what I know yeah it was I went through a little bit Back to Dan in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, we step into the world of two-time AFL Premiership player and Premiership coach with Geelong, Chris Scott. Chris, a lovely, lovely fella who doesn't typically like talking about himself, but I think we got him at a good time, is a very, very deep thinker who loves his club and his players. But like any senior leaders in any organisation, Chris has called on to make some pretty tough decisions. Just say in my wildest dreams, I played 64 games for Geelong, for example, and I got to the end of my fourth season and I'd had a few injuries, I wasn't getting into the game plan and you decide as a club that I can no longer play for your footy club. So you call me into your office. Howie, I need to speak to you. How do you have that conversation when you are putting on hold or ending a young man's dream? They're the worst conversations. Uh, and I, I don't think there's a great understanding for how the, um, the process works within the modern footy club. I, I think it's, it's perceived more as um, the way it worked 20 years ago when the, the coach was the one having that conversation, not only having the conversation but making the decision. Those decisions now are much 
more shared across a group of people, even to the point where um, the final decision on who stays and goes um, is not mine. Dealing with some of our, and, and this sounds a little harsh for the 64 gamer, um, but they're easier than the 300 gamer who is so sure that he could play for another five years. Um, and some of those, some of those conversations, and it's not just a conversation, some of those, those, those series of conversations over a period of months have gone pretty close to breaking me at times. Sometimes I've just felt I'm, I'm not sure that it, it's worth it to, to carry this burden. But again, you know, you pretty quickly realise that it can't all be sunshine and rainbows. You got to, if you're going to have the good parts of the job, you got to accept the bad. That's Chris Scott coming soon to the Howie Games. Back to Dan. So you progress through the categories, and I won't bore you by making you go the way through that. But you get a Formula One test in Hareth, the famous track where uh, Shui took Villeneuve out at the end of the straight, and then Villeneuve was able to keep going to win the world championship. Yes, uh, good knowledge. Villeneuve is all over him. Look, he's going he's through. Through. Oh yes. Oh, I don't think. Goes Michael Schumacher. That didn't work. That didn't work, Michael. You hit the wrong part of him, my friend. Well, I was there. I was there. I, oh, wow. Funnily enough, I used to work I used to work for Bernie um, for three years, Danny boy. Um, wow. This is news. Yeah, not asking questions, pulling camera cables and plugging in cameras and all that type of stuff. So uh, who did I see? I saw Villeneuve win a title and Mika Hakkinen win Hakenham. a couple of titles yep. in the McLaren. Yeah. Um, so... How do you find out you're going to get a Formula One test? Is it a phone call? Is it a letter? Like, I'm always fascinated by how you find out and you make that first big step. Yeah, so um, I've had I've had a bit of everything, you know, as far as like the milestones go. Like, getting into the Red Bull program as a junior, it was it was an email. But then I want to say my <laughs> my first F1 test was a was a phone call. Okay. Yeah, and then sorry, going ahead, like my first F one race was was also a phone call, and it was very unexpected. So, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's they're good phone calls to have, I guess. But that's where it all sinks in. Like, so going back to Hareth, yeah, the first test, getting the call, and it was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually gonna finally get to drive one of these, like in perfect it. Love it. situation conditions on a real track with, you know, uh, it was it was. It was wild, you know, so. Um, so your first yeah. time you strap yourself in and, like, you've driven Formula 3s and Formula Renaults and all these things, what is different about the F1 car when you take it out for that installation lap? Like, you just surely you're pinching yourself, mate. You're a kid from Perth and there you are in Hareth and you're about to roll out in an F1 car. Like, it's it's outstanding. It is outstanding. Yeah, yeah it was, I, I was. I was certainly pinching myself. Like, I was, um, I mean, da- so Dad flew over for it. Cause he's like, I'm not going to miss uh, this. And you know, it was, what a ripper. that would have, you know, cause nothing by then, of course, nothing's guaranteed. So for all, like for all we knew that could have been the first and last time I ever drove a, an F1 car. So he flew out and uh, I remember me yeah, driving out of the pit lane and I, I he was wearing sunglasses, but I, I want to say he was, he was crying. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the big emotional Italian, but, uh, but yeah, it was just, it's all surreal. And, there's excitement, but there's nerves. There's, I think the biggest the biggest thing is like the the power of the car and the sound is is intimidating, absolutely. But um, 
it's just kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're scared to forget what to do. Like there's so many things on the steering wheel and, and the team give you so many instructions and you're like, oh, just, just, just remember, just remember the process. It's, it's so much more complicated than, than any other race car. Can you jump forward for a sec? I, I want to hear about your first Formula One race, but you're talking about how complex it is. Can you indulge me, Dan? So you go out on the formation lap. You're in the Renault. Say it's the next race you compete in. Just take me through the process, if you don't, if you don't mind, all the things that are happening that we don't see when we're watching the coverage, and then when you actually get to the start and you're setting up for that race start. Can you just talk me through everything that's involved in getting the car around, getting it on the spot and getting it off the line? Yeah, so the there's a lot going on. So, And also the once we start the formation lap, um, we're not allowed any more radio communication. So we have to kind of remember the process and the team is not allowed to talk to us anymore until the race is then started. Okay. So, yeah, so the formation start the lights go out and you know we do a burnout and uh that through the all that lap the warm-up lap it's um it's a combination of you know warming your tires so you'll see like a lot of the cars weaving and that's just to turn and to generate some temperature and some friction uh through the tires um we will use every gear so the the gearbox needs to be synchronized so it enables like a quick shift system so we have to make sure that we use every gear on the formation lap so that we've got like the quick shift set up for the, for the race. Um, brakes, you're warming up brakes. Uh, and then coming around on, onto the straight, you know, before you line up in the grid, um, it depends on the race, but we, we're told to do a certain amount of burnouts to, to get the tires hot just before the start of the race. So you might do say four burnouts so there's a button which we, we have to press during that to kind of, uh, it's like a rev limiter so that we don't yep. get the engine too hot during the burnouts. Um, then we roll up to the grid. Um, what do we do? Turn off the, the battery charge button, which is on during the formation lap as well. Um, yeah, wait for the cars to fill the back of the grid, pull the clutch, grab first gear. And then, yeah, you find like on the rev lights, you, you creep up on the throttle, you try and find, I think like the two middle lights and then you're watching the lights go out, go out. And then when they go, you you kind of drop the clutch in, in two different phases. You can't just drop it and that's it because you'll just sit there wheel spinning. So you've kind of the first part, you have to do it fast because of your reaction, but then you've got to do the second part slow. Yeah, I don't know. And then you're kind of watching who's in front of you, who's behind you and what you know the chaos is is then about to unfold in turn one so there's a lot going on i love that description and i love the fact you said you wait for the rest of the grid to fill up i like that i was just assuming that yeah you're, i was, I was you're at the start i was at the front of the grid for sure yes okay well c- continue on that then so the first lap um for all the formula one nerds out there and we watch it mate the first lap how much of it is make-up position and really send one down the inside as opposed to the last thing I want to do is pick up a puncture or damage a front wing or get pushed into a, into a trap? How do you balance that making up positions in the race, if you're not on pole, against crashing out in the first lap and having to go back and see the team? And it's lights out and away we go here at Spa. Hamilton gets away well. Perez as well, covering his teammate Hamilton. 
Hamilton moves over to cover on Sebastian Vettel, and there's locking up in a crash, and Fernando Alonso goes over the top there of Charles Leclerc's Sauber. Also involved Nico Hulkenberg in the Renault. Yeah, it's that's that's always a tough one to manage, and I think even your you know, emotions on the grid before the lights go out. You know, you want to be pumped up because you want to, you know, be in a in a kind of more aggressive mindset, you know, for the start of the race, not to get bullied and to try and make positions. But you also try to be calm because you want your reaction to be smooth and sharp. Um, but I, I think how, how you judge the first lap of the race, it's it's, I mean, if there's a gap, you tend to go for it. But it also can depend on where you qualified, what type of circuit it is, if you can overtake, if you can't, um, and that will kind of create an importance on, on the first lap. Um, so to give you an example, Montreal last year, um, I qualified mm -hmm. fourth fourth in the Renault, uh, which, which was awesome for us. And, you know, the three cars ahead of me were the two Mercedes and a Ferrari. So I didn't really, obviously, if I got ahead of, you know, some of the first three cars, all well and good. But there was no risk I needed to take because as the race unfolded, they would eventually pass me and, and, and beat me. So it was more for me just having a clean first lap, holding forth and, and not taking any risk. 70 laps ahead of us here in Montreal. It's lights out. Away we go. Good start from Vettel and from Hamilton Leclerc. Now comes up on the inside. And you've got Ricardo ahead of Gasly and Bottas. Vettel into turn one, wheel to wheel. Leclerc and Hamilton. But Hamilton gets the inside line through turn two. And he's away. Ricardo a bit unstable, but he's okay ahead of Gasly. Um, so in that scenario, it's more of just a, um, it's more of like a measured type of first lap. Um, yep. But, uh, you know, another scenario, maybe where I start towards the back of the grid, like Singapore, where I had nothing to lose, then you just you just send it and you kind of, yeah, weigh up your risk and reward. He's trying to defend against Danny Ricciardo and they contact at turn seven and Giovinazzi comes off worst and you hope that there's no damage on either. But he just sees a gap and he goes through it. That's what Ricciardo does. And how much can you see in the car? Because the, the wing mirrors are so tiny and we'll think, oh, you know, why didn't he see him? What's the key? Obviously, one of your great strengths is overtaking. From where you sit, what's the key to overtaking in Formula One? Uh, I'll answer that part second. I'll just answer quickly yeah. how much do you see? Uh, yep. Very, very little. <laughs> like, that, that's another thing I, I, wish, I wish viewers could know how little we see. Um, because even I think, you know, there's the onboard cameras, you know, the camera normally above our helmet, um, which is, yeah, it's one of the best camera angles we've got, I think, and, and it's cool. But that camera also sits, you know, what is it, a foot, two feet higher or something than, than our eye line. So Spot on. I feel like when viewers also watch that, they think that's what we see and we see so much less than that. Um, so as an example, like when we sit in the car, I don't see... I don't see the front wing. I have no idea where the front wing is. You've just got to, it's a bit like your road car, I guess. You don't see, you know, the very end of the bonnet, you know, in, in some road cars that you have. So at, at a point in time, you just get enough feeling and awareness of where where the edge is. You know, it's a bit of a visual reference, but um, yeah, so overtaking, um, it's poor. The Red Bull is, is within touching distance if he puts one little foot wrong. Gaining down that back straight. Ricardo goes for it from a long way back. This would be sensational if he makes it. And you know what? He has 
made it. He's gone from sixth to first. Surely there wasn't any room. Oh, yes, there was. It's a lot of, um, to set up the overtake, you know, sometimes it can be just very much on instinct and a gap can open and you don't even think about it. You just kind of naturally get drawn to the gap and you go for it. Um, but other times there is a lot of setting up of an opponent. You know, you'll, you'll create the gap at times and, and you'll see, see them start to make mistakes and you might dummy into one corner but you have no intention of passing in that corner. You know, it might be three corners from then. So uh, it's, it's kind of a bit of cat and mouse, a bit of mind games, which, which sets it up. But I think ultimately, to answer the question in short, you need to be decisive and you just need to have full conviction when, when pulling the trigger. Otherwise, it's anything half-hearted is never going to work. But under now, intense pressure as Ricardo down towards the second chicane. On the inside goes Daniel Ricardo. Ricardo takes the place. Brilliant move. He forced Sebastian Vettel to the wide outside, and then Ricardo slipped down the inside and took that move. That's it for part A of Dan Ricardo. See you on the other side for part B, Rockstars. Listener.